DiscerningHearts.com presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the director of the Center for Faith and Culture and writer-in-residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a renowned biographer whose works include his own autobiography as well as books on the lives of Father Ho Lang, William Shakespeare, J.R.R. Tolkien, L.R. Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, and numerous others. He's the recipient of an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College for the Liberal Arts and has also received the Pollock Award for Christian Biography. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review and has hosted two series on Shakespeare for EWTN as well as hosting several EWTN productions on J.R.R. Tolkien. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Arguably, Shakespeare's finest and most important play, Hamlet, is also one of the most misunderstood masterpieces of world literature. To be or not to be may be the question, but the answer has eluded many generations of critics. What does it mean to be, and is everything as it seems to be? Probably the darkest of all Shakespeare's plays, Macbeth, is also one of the most challenging. Is it a work of nihilistic despair? Quote, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Unquote. Or is it a cautionary tale, warning of the dangers of Machiavellianism and relativism? Does it lead to hell and hopelessness, or does it point to a light beyond the darkness? We now begin our discussion on William Shakespeare's Hamlet and Macbeth. William Shakespeare, talk to us about the significance of this one man's contribution to literature. Well, if you were to look at the whole history of Western civilization, there'd be three writers that could argue or compete for the accolade of the greatest writer ever. One would be Homer, the other would be Dante, and the third would be Shakespeare. So certainly within the sphere of English literature, as he's the only English speaker of those three, he's the greatest writer ever. I wouldn't bat an eyelid if someone said, no, he's better than Homer. I may dispute whether he's better than Dante. I think Divine Comedy is a sublime achievement. Whichever way you look at it, Shakespeare is one of the three greatest writers that ever lived and the greatest writer that ever lived writing in the English language. Consequently, you know, the Ignatius Critical Editions have put great emphasis on bringing Shakespeare's plays uh, into these editions so that we can bypass or be the antidote to the poison of some of the postmodern nonsense which is written about Shakespeare's plays. We have four of Shakespeare's plays already. Uh, out of the 14 titles published so far in the series, four of them are Shakespeare's plays. And I intend to keep that up, I mean, about one in every four, to be a Shakespeare play from now on. The genre of play that type of writing that was done for the stage is still a very legitimate form of reading, just even in the everyday. I think we're so trained to go to the novel that we overlook plays. Yeah, I think so. But should we say the endurance of the plays is spoken very clearly of by Shakespeare's own enduring influence on the culture, that there's probably no writer out there over a period of the last five decades that's been more influential than William Shakespeare and of course he writes almost exclusively drama of course we know he's written some wonderful sonnets and some wonderful poems but you know he's known for his plays and I think that the drama still speaks very powerfully 
to the culture. Even in the 20th century, you know, we've had some wonderful plays written. We think of A Man Full Seasons, uh, you know, Robert Bolt, or we think of Murder in the Cathedral by T.S. Eliot, you know, mm-hmm. Potting Shed by Graham Greene. And of course, we, we've already discussed in this series how in the uh, 1890s, Oscar Wilde and George Bernard Shaw were we're producing some wonderful plays. So the drama is perennial. It's not something which belongs to a certain period of history. You know, you might say that the, the classical epic of Homer might belong to the ancient Greeks. Well, the drama seems to belong to all ages, indeed, from the ancient Greeks, with Aeschylus and Sophocles right through to the present day. The play has been a, an integral part of what Western culture is. Why would it be important for someone who has seen a stage setting a presentation of a particular play why would it be important for them to actually sit down and read the play itself well the most important thing about reading the play within the context of an ignatius critical edition specifically is that so often in fact more often than not these days shakespeare's plays are the victim of postmodern vandalism where the meaning of the play is inverted twisted distorted perverted you know so that the actual meaning the integral meaning intended by Shakespeare which is timelessly Christian is basically eclipsed or contorted or distorted so if you really want to understand what these great plays mean on their deepest level which is the level that Shakespeare himself was working then you do need to go to these editions read the introduction that gives the context and read these wonderful selections of essays by academics shedding light on different aspects of the play so really seeing a play by itself is not likely to enlighten you but on the contrary is likely to confuse you because the thing with a play is that that a director can change its meaning by the way words are said by actions that an actor does in between his lines i'll give you an example i saw in a performance of the merchant of venice in england a few years back where all the christian characters in the play were made to be skinheads and in between their lines, they were spitting in the face of Shylock and kicking him. Now, no, no lines were changed at all. Mm-hmm. But the entire meaning of the play was turned inside out. So that's the sort of thing you can do with the staging of a play. A director can do all sorts of things that, that change the meaning. So to really to stay anchored in what Shakespeare meant in Shakespeare's plays, we do have to return to these tradition-oriented editions. Talk to us about Macbeth. How is it that we should enter into this play? Well, I think that it's actually quite useful to talk about Macbeth and Hamlet uh, in relation to each other, that both of those plays have been brought out by the Ignatius Critical Editions. And it seems that Macbeth, which was written uh, later than Hamlet, and I think 1606 is, it seems to be the date that most people agree upon, it's about five years after Hamlet. But at a time when things were very volatile in England politically, Macbeth seems to be the anti-Hamlet. Basically what happens in Hamlet is Hamlet begins with the temptation to despair, that things have happened in his life, the death of his father, the marriage of his mother to his uncle, whom he doesn't like, for very good reason, as we discover later Mm -hmm. in the play. And he's tempted to despair in a suicide, all thoughts he has at the beginning. And then through the course of the play, with the assistance of the purgatorial vision of the ghost of his father who informs him of first of all his own murder at the hands of king claudius that hamlet grows in knowledge he grows in philosophical clarity and he grows in virtue and ultimately he grows in faith so at the end of the play he he talks about the readiness is all and that there's not a sparrow that falls from heaven without that father in heaven knowing about it and there's the long scene with the memento mori in the graveyard which is reminds us of the four last things death judgment heaven and hell and 
all focuses perfectly for the climax of the play where Hamlet is actually killed by sin. The poison in the chalice and the, and the poison on the sword, the venom, working on the supernatural level is, is, is the venom of sin. So he's killed by the sins of others. So he's a sacrificial victim in that way. But, but one who we know is going to have, you know, at the end of the play, may flights of angels sing you to your bed, which is uh, taken from the Catholic prayers for the dead. So we know he's he has a happy ending in the sense that he's going to heaven, not hell. Macbeth, on the other hand, is the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. Because at the beginning of Macbeth, he's being lauded by the king and by everybody else for his heroism and for his virtue and what a wonderful, heroic, courageous man he is. And then, again, through a supernatural intervention, whereas, you know, in Hamlet, the supernatural intervention is by Hamlet's father, who's clearly in purgatory. In Macbeth the supernatural intervention is from the weird sisters, the witches, who are clearly, you know, tempters from hell. And this demonic temptation begins by sowing seeds of doubt in Macbeth's mind and then in the mind of his wife, and how this leads to whereas Hamlet is an an ascent out of despair towards faith, hope, and love. Macbeth is a descent from the vantage point of one who's lauded for being courageous and virtuous, a descent into ultimate despair. So that when at the end of the play, Macbeth talks about that life is about idiots signifying nothing. And that's, that's his ultimate affirmation in nothing. So when he dies, he dies in despair. So the two together show that two ways that we can go, if you like. The mighty are capable of falling if they succumb to temptation and the most despised and despondent of people are capable of rising if they respond to the promptings of grace and to the reason of philosophy. So again, this shows Shakespeare, I think, at his best, those two plays complementing each other. Were they written at the same time, the same era within themselves? Well, there's always disputes with Shakespeare scholars when exactly Shakespeare wrote these plays, but the general consensus would be that Macbeth was written about five years after Hamlet. But Macbeth was written at a time when Shakespeare was writing many of his darkest plays, at the same sort of time as he was writing King Lear and Othello. And there were possibly political reasons for that happening in Shakespeare's life. Shakespeare, as a Catholic, following the gunpowder plot in 1605 and the clampdown on Catholics, sort of um, destroying the hope that Catholicism might be tolerated following the coming to the throne of James I, all of these hopes were thwarted. So a lot of Shakespeare's darkest plays were written at, at that time. And Macbeth's one of those. First of all, Whereas Macbeth is not a play that points to despair, because one of the other big mistakes about Macbeth mm-hmm. uh, is that you know it is it's itself a nihilistic work. No, it shows the dangers of nihilism. It shows the dangers of despair. It shows what happens if we follow that path. The playwright is clearly at a very great critical distance from Macbeth. And if we don't see that, we misunderstand the play. And one way we can show that, apart from the text of Macbeth itself, which supports it, is to look at the plays that Shakespeare's run at the same time. You know, King Lear ends with a vision of the resurrected Cordelia. So even in the midst of the darkness and the dark dark days of 1605, 1606, when these plays were being written, Shakespeare's Christian hope shines through. And to show what happens when someone follows the satanic path leading to the death of Macbeth is merely showing that's not the path to take. From Macbeth, Act 2, Scene 1, by William Shakespeare. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle toward my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. 
Art thou not fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation, proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? I see thee yet in form as palpable as this which now I draw, and marshalest me the way that I was going, and such an instrument I was to use. Mine eyes are made the fools of the other senses, else worth all the rest I see thee still. And on thy blade and dungeon gouts of blood, which was not so before, there's no such thing. Tis the bloody business which informs thus to mine eyes. Now o'er the one half-world nature seems dead, And wicked dreams abuse the curtain's sleep. Witchcraft celebrates Pelakati's offerings and withered murder, Alarmed by his sentinel the wolf, Whose howls has watched thus with his stealthy pace. Tarquin's ravishing strides towards his design moves like a ghost. Though sure and firm set earth, hear not my steps. Which way they walk for fear thy very stones plate of my whereabout. And take the present horror from the time. Which now sits with it. Whiles I threat he lives. Words to the heat of Deeds to cold breath gives. I go, and it is done. The bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell. Summons thee to heaven or to hell. It really is those forks in a road, and what's the solution? What's the answer? And that's the value of reading those plays, but also reading them together. But you really do need the critical edition, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's very difficult to understand a Shakespeare play if you're coming to it completely unassisted, that you're just reading it without the support of those who know the plays better than you do, those who have studied the plays better than you do, and particularly those that are not polluted by the mania of postmodernism, which manages somehow or other to misread everything it touches. It is to criticism and to literary perception what Midas is to gold, that mm-hmm. everything, everything it touches turns to dross, basically, that all the true meaning, all the, the genuine value is destroyed upon the touch, turns it to dust. It- is also true that with every Shakespeare play, it's not just the one character. It is a complete myriad of different experiences that are going into all the different characters. Absolutely. One of the aspects of Shakespeare's genius is his ability to understand people. I mean, not, not humanity as some sort of graven image that we put up there, like the, like the philanthropist who has this sort of view of humanity as something which is actually faceless. Mm-hmm. But he, Shakespeare understood people, understood people and loved people, uh, understood their strengths, their weaknesses, their abilities to rise to sanctity and their abilities to fall into the depths of sin. And of course, there's something of that in all of us. And that's one of the, the beauties of Shakespeare. Is he does hold a mirror up to us because, you know, only the most arrogant of us believe that we're not capable of falling in a sensational way. If we, we follow our, our appetites instead of our reason, follow allow our passions to get the better of our will, then uh, we can all go the way of Macbeth um, or the way of Othello or the way of King Lear at the beginning of the play and King Lear ends mm-hmm. 
happily, paradoxically, but nonetheless his downfall. Pride precedeth the fall is something we've seen over and over and over again. And in Hamlet, what the beautiful thing about Hamlet is its humility precedes the rise. In also paralleling the two, I think it's a, a wonderful adventure just taking a look at the two women. The main women in there, I would say, maybe you'd agree, Ophelia and Hamlet and then Lady Macbeth. They both came to sad endings, to say the least. But the, the big difference between them, actually, is not the, the common femininity, of course, but the big difference between them is that Ophelia is really defined by her weakness and Lady Macbeth is defined by her strength. Lady Macbeth is a very formidable character who basically gets her will. Even Macbeth very probably would not have followed through with the promptings of the demonic temptation if it had not been for Lady Macbeth's own prompting, reinforcing and buttressing the weird sisters. And of course, you know, uh, she ends in madness. Mm -hmm. Ophelia also ends in madness, but for her, I think, it's because of her weakness. She's warned by Laertes, her brother, that the relationship with Hamlet is dangerous, not so much because of Hamlet's lack of virtue, but because he's the heir to the throne, and therefore could he really you know, marry her? And if he couldn't marry her, then she's you know, basically dallying with the flame. She's warned by that Polonius, of course, ends up using her as a spy against Hamlet. It seems to me evident that at some point or other, Hamlet becomes aware perhaps sooner rather than later that Ophelia is actually spying on him for his father and then of course he behaves towards her very rudely so she's treated very badly by those closest to her she doesn't seem to ever stand up for her own position mm. she's she's buffeted by the winds of the passions of others by her father her brother the, the designs of King Claudius uh, and of course by Hamlet himself and this following the death of course of her father Shakespeare's banishment that she's driven to madness so they, they both go mad mm -hmm. uh, and ironically with Lady Macbeth that there's any glimmer of hope for her soul it's in her madness because it's clearly mm -hmm. she's driven mad by her conscience mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps it's her conscience that's going to be the salvation of her soul I mean it's not for us to judge one way or the other and say poor Ophelia it's very difficult to see her deserving the suicide's grave you know whether she should be there's the big discussion of course in the graveyard about should she be buried in sacred ground because she's a suicide and of course it was traditional not to bury suicides because it's a mortal sin a sin of despair against God and against life but there's this whole issue of a crime of passion if you like was she in her right senses was she in her right mind mm -hmm. when she took her life and there has to be, of course, a large element of doubt as to whether she was actually sane. And if she's not in the right mind, then how culpable can she be? So Shakespeare, again, giving these, these wonderful characters, these are not the main characters, if you like, secondary characters that have such force and such power. Either they're powerful because of their weakness, paradoxically, or they're powerful in their own right because of their evil, uh, in the case of Lady Macbeth. Also, the choruses of voices through friendships whether good or bad, for both men. It's a fascinating thing because, again, if we place ourselves in a Hamlet position or Macbeth tempting or anything like that, we too get voices all around us. How do you discern which one is the guiding voice? Absolutely. What is the motive behind the voices we hear, in, I mean, whether it be in a, in a novel or a play? And, of course, you know, in Macbeth, Macbeth systematically betrays every single one of his friends with the possible exception of his wife and even at the end when he hears of her suicide he seems to be indifferent so it's as if he's killed his ability to love systematically bit by bit by the betrayal of one friend after another 
But then Hamlet, on the other hand, of course, is very true and loyal to those who love him and those whom he loves, including, of course, the memory and duty to his own father, but is also betrayed, of course, by Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, that so-called friends who are taken into the service of King Claudius, who has nothing but malicious thoughts towards Hamlet, of course, and even Ophelia, whom he does appear to love, seems to betray him. So in Hamlet, there's the battle between the true friends who remain loyal throughout and the friends who are treacherous so yes choose your friends wisely know who you're listening to and why you listen to them and what their motives are for saying what they're saying from hamlet act three scene one by william shakespeare to be or not to be that is the question whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep, the chance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death what dreams may come, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love? The law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes. When he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pith and moment, with this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Soft you now, the fair Ophelia. Nymph in thy horizons, be all my sins remembered. How to listen. That's what can be learned also in entering into these plays through the reading and then hopefully being able to watch it staged, but to read the work before you even see the play in the theater. Absolutely. And see, the other thing is these voices in Shakespeare serve an objective purpose. In other words, Shakespeare doesn't move in a, a relativistic cosmos where all the voices are equally valid. Some voices are telling lies, and some voices have evil intentions, and those voices have evil consequences. I mean, evil intentions have evil consequences. So the other thing that's going on in Hamlet, as I said, although his humility precedes his rise, his rise is facilitated by his reason. 
by his testing something. Now, is the king, his father, the ghost of his father, is this a, a, a soul from purgatory who would therefore, ipso facto, being a Catholic in the antechambers of heaven, be telling the truth? Or is he in hell? Or is he a merely a demon in the guise of his father telling him lies? Mm-hmm. So he comes up with the idea of the play you know, to catch the conscience of the king. He tests it. And he wants to test objectively. How does he know whether King Claudius killed his father? And so Hamlet wasn't there himself at the time. So how does he do that? Well, he has to somehow get King Claudius to confess. Mm-hmm. And of course, by, by putting that play on, he gets him to confess. And, and it also proves that the ghost is honest. It's an honest ghost, to use um, Hamlet's own phrase. And again, the converse of that is Macbeth, mm-hmm. who becomes so subsumed in his own cosmos no, it's about me and my power and my ambition that he loses all connection with the reality of the objective cosmos. Trying to make his own cosmos bigger through pride and power actually makes it shrink and shrink and shrink. So at the end, he has no friends, no allies. Even his own soldiers can't wait to escape from his tyranny. And he's by himself there, utterly alone in his own cosmos. Mm. At this time, I I think it's important to give a sense, once again, of Shakespeare's experience within the Church of England, within the the monarchy of Elizabeth, of what he is dealing with and what he's trying to communicate. Well, Shakespeare, as I've shown in my book, The Quest for Shakespeare, and then my subsequent book, Through Shakespeare's Eyes, and actually several of the essayists show in the Ignatius Critical Editions, can be seen to be a Catholic both in the facts of his life, in the biographical details, and in the texts of his works, in the plays. So we would expect to see certain things present in the plays if this if this were so. So, for instance, when Shakespeare is dealing with kingship and monarchy in the reign of Elizabeth, much of it is about whether the monarch is legitimate. And for mm-hmm. Catholics, there was a doubt over whether Queen Elizabeth was a legitimate queen because she was the daughter of Anne Boleyn, was she the illicit queen because uh, the divorce from Catherine of Aragon was was not valid because it's not sanctioned by the Pope or the Church. So we see that, first of all, this question of legitimacy being uh, very important in Shakespeare's plays during the reign of Elizabeth. Then during the reign of James, because Catholics were quite comfortable with the fact that King James was the legitimate king, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. It's not a question of legitimacy anymore, but it's a question of what are the rights of the king in relation to the rights of religion and the rights of the individual. Because King James I was very much in favor of the divine right of kings, which basically kings could do nothing wrong, or if they did something wrong, you had no option but to obey them anyway, because they were sent as a punishment from God, if if that's the case. Mm -hmm. So that was his position, the extreme monarchist position. Then you had the, the extreme republican position of the Puritans, who wanted to get rid of the monarchy altogether. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Catholic position, which is halfway between the two. No, monarchy's okay, but monarchy has to be subject ultimately to divinity, to God, and to God's laws. And you know, the monarch has no right to disobey the laws of God and the natural law, etc. And this is the via media, the, media the, the middle way that the Catholic Church's political philosophy uh, dealt with these issues, and that is exactly the political philosophy that Shakespeare takes in his plays. So in Macbeth, for instance, what is the right of the king? Can the king do what he likes? And there's a big discussion, in fact, about what is kingship during the play. And St. Edward the Confessor, the King of England, uh, who's a character in the play, he doesn't appear to say anything, but he's spoken about because of his sanctity and because of the way he rules as a saint. He has great healing power and he's loved by his subjects. So Shakespeare's setting up an alternative to either this 
tyrannical divine right of kings or this anti-monarchy view of the Puritans is sublimely the Catholic political philosophy that he's echoing and reflecting. I wish we had more time to go through all this, but that's the gift of having the Ignatius Critical Editions because anyone now can open the book and enter into the drama. And honestly, the Ignatius Critical Editions of the Shakespeare plays, anybody buying one of those editions and reading them will have so much more insight on the play, even if they've seen the play performed several times. I have no, absolutely no doubt at all that when they read the essays, read the introduction, look at the new notes that we have there to the text of the play itself, they will understand it in a way that was beyond their ken beforehand. Thank you, Joseph Pierce. My pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.